Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you are listening to Index Foundation podcast. In February 2024, we had a conversation with Sandy Hilal about heritage, refugee camps, society, war, Gaza and destruction. Sandy Hilal runs, together with Alessandro Petti, DAR, the research practice that received the Golden Lion at the Architecture Venice Biennial in 2023. Part of their practice has been focused on the conditions in Palestine and the prolonged temporality represented by the refugee camps. We talked about knowledge, history, the life of people and its value at this moment when Palestine is being the place for a war with many casualties. Sandy Hilal talks about adaptability, the future process of repairing Gaza and how life should remain stronger than death. Let me start from the, uh, the collective names, which is Dar. Uh, Dar means home, and indeed, you know, I mean, uh, to return back to Palestine and think decolonization in a public space where in 2006 the concept of decolonization was was not even yet uh, so present in the uh, Palestinian public space, and we decided to turn our house into a almost an institution of thinking decolonization. We began to do lectures on our roof. Uh, we began to invite people to come and sleep with us, talk with us, eat with us. And that was maybe the beginning of the seeds of our practice. And, you know, living many years in Palestine, we uh, began to work also in Palestinian refugee camps. And indeed, we looked at Palestinian refugee camps within the framework of decolonization. And, and that is where I think the, the concepts of heritage and refugee camp became very clear because, you know, decolonization demand a certain kind of agency, right? And, and in some way, refugees are always seen as victims, as people in miserable situation. But, you know, decolonization means, unse- means resist, means demanding a different lives, means demanding agency. And, and I didn't encounter in my life more people with strong political agencies like refugees. And yet, unfortunately, the only heritage and history we want to speak about when it comes to refugees is the heritage of misery and victimhood. Yet, the moment you put the world refugees within a framework of decolonization and political agency, there is no way that you can escape heritage as a consequences of that, because they are building history. And if we don't accept that they are building history, we only want to see one face of what is really going on around the, the, the idea of, of refugee camps and being refugees today. 
refugee camps, especially in the Middle East, and we work in one particular refugee camps, and I, I do believe that it's extremely important here to be specific on where we work. Not that we there are 59 Palestinian refugee camps in the Middle East, yet each one of them has its own history and its own context and, and, and political struggle. They share certain political struggles, but they also have a very specific history, each one of them. And, and the, the, the camp where we work the most is called the Heysha refugee camp. It is in Bethlehem area. It's less than half kilometer square. And in that less than half kilometer square, there are 40 non-governmental organizations. You imagine how active that camp is. And you know, we began to see people building their own houses, not owning them, yet building them. Uh, managing their public beyond any uh, public organization. There are no municipality to manage the public, and yet the, the people began to manage their own public through a whole very sophisticated, I would say, system of self-organization. And, and these camps that we are talking about in the West Bank have almost no criminal records. No, I mean, they are places that are safe with a high rate of university degrees. People actually are keen to send their kids to universities. And so we are speaking about spaces that manage, that are carved completely outside of the state sovereignty. Yet they manage to create a safe, interesting politically uh, space. And, and actually it's worth it. That is a part of our history that we need to look at. And, and paradoxically, you know, even a platform like UNESCO would not recognize anyone else except of the state nominating that kind of history. So at, at, at a certain point, we arrived to a point that we saw such a rich history with no platform in the world to recognize that history. And this is why we actually decide absolutely to go for a project that we call it Refugee Heritage, where we took on ourselves as DAR the task of what a state might be doing, which is really filling the whole dossier of UNESCO in how can we fill it. And then we began to use art platform to invite experts from UNESCO, uh, state uh, experts, refugee leaders themselves. I mean, every, as if we are a state and we are discussing a, a proposal. And in, in that sense, we really filled that, uh, that um, dossier. And the reason of why we filled that dossier is not really to nominate the Asia refugee camp, but to show how to show the void we have in our words and, and the lack of um, empathy, connection, um, seeing what is, you know, a lot of time, the only way we can process refuge is only if these people will play the victimhood role. And we cannot see beyond that. And, and you know, it, it was a moment where, as architects and artists, we, where we were seeing maybe one of the most important history of our humankind today, yet seems that there is no space in the world where we can raise this out. And we decided to do it as 
individuals and to act as a state. And indeed, we published the book, we published an artwork, and, and we were even told by different experts in UNESCO that they were discussing that books, even in UNESCO, and understanding what we do with all these numbers of refugees in the world if they are not part of our mandate. The thing is that when, I have to say, it began everything with, with us seeing what is going in refugee camps and with us realizing that we have no package whatsoever, even with our PhDs from Western universities. We did not have the right vocabulary to speak and express what we were witnessing. And we decided instead of indeed still be imposing that knowledge on a place that actually does not have, where that knowledge is not suitable, we took the challenge to say, you know what? We don't know anything, indeed. Maybe we need to build a new vocabulary. And the moment that we left behind us a whole vocabulary that, that we were bringing with us, thinking that this is the only way for us to understand that reality, the moment we left that vocabulary behind, we felt free to begin also to have empathy with the camp, not only through the, the lens of victimhood. And that was really the first decolonizing act that, that we did. No? And then we began a little bit to do certain things in the camps. I mean, the Refugee Heritage Project was among the last projects that we did in the camp. But we then, you know, the moment we, that we felt we, did, we are not equipped with the right knowledge, we decided to create a university in a refugee camp. And then, you know, at that point, refugees themselves challenge us and says, okay, if you built the university and at that university was really speaking about the permanent temporariness, what does it mean to live temporary forever? And what, what is how this camp departuring from a tent into 75 years of building wall by wall, window by window, door by door, what, what can we call this? What is this? So the university was around to understand in 75 years of exile, we built so much from a tent to that kind of concrete. How can we speak about it? And, and you know, we did the university. We built what we called at that time a collective dictionary. And we began to use the words that we needed. But then there was a moment where refugee camps leaders themselves looks at us and says, come on, but you are architects, artists, why don't you build a place for that university? And that was a bit of a challenge where we say, yes, it's true. It's not enough to build knowledge. How can we act as architects and artists in such a situation? And at that point, actually, we pushed ourselves too much and says, what if we are building a university? What kind of building? we might have. And at that point, actually, we came up with the idea of the concrete tent. Because, you know, I mean, people will look at this, why a concrete tent? Indeed, that was a bit, a concrete tent is a permanent temporary situation, is the 75 years of exile. And, and it was incredible also to see how people immediately actually, because, because the university was about making questions and suddenly we see an art an architectural piece that is posing same questions that we were posing through our words. And once we built that concrete tent, we were even pushing ourselves more to say, you know, we see that. 
we see the knowledge, we see history, we work with people. What is the ultimate platform that we have in the world to shout that there is heritage there? And of course, the obvious answer was UNESCO. So we decided, okay, we go to UNESCO, but the incredible part that, you know, even we, and at that point also we created an, a, a very strong relationship with refugee, refugees themselves and, you know, the leadership at, at that camp. And we returned back to them and says, how about nominating the Haitian refugee camp and the 44 villages of origin as part of the history of the refugee camp? And, you know, at that point, there was a moment of panic among every one of us just because we didn't understand what does that mean? I mean, what, what do you mean? Is, is that freezing the camp? Others, I mean, was saying, but the camp is not beautiful. What does it, why, why, why to nominate this? Who would accept that? And at that point, it was really incredible to see how the potential of the art to work as a space of thinking of resistance, of disobedience. And the, the refugee leaders themselves approached us and says, you know, we are, we would like to try this, but can we try it not in a real life? Can we, because you are architects and artists, and can we make almost a trial of that? And at that point we decided, why not? We do it, we act as if it is real, but at the end of the day, we did that as an art project and we are always able to come back and, and refuge within the art and, and adjust and return back to reality. So that project was one of these projects where we really, you know, art was not an optional. Art was, you know, without, without that field of art, it, there was no room for it to happen. And indeed, in order for this nomination, you know, nomination, nominating of the Haitian refugee camp and the 44 villages of origin, you would need the state of Palestine and the state of Israel to come together and write a, a, a dossier to UNESCO in order to recognize that history. And there was no reality. There is no reality for this at that time. But that does not mean that if you would ask any Palestinian refugee or not, what you would put as on the top of the list of the Palestinian heritage, the answer with no doubt would be refugee camps and villages of origin from where refugees were expelled. So in, in that sense, maybe there was no reality that would permit that, but the just answer would be, yes, that is our heritage. And this is where art become a, a major space where we can really act in a way that we leave reality behind us. And, and in some way, we invent a new world that we want to live in today, not to until Palestine will be liberated. I think that we gave justice to a place like the Haitian refugee camp and the 44 village, for, for villages of origin by recognizing that, yes, we don't have maybe the international system to do so, but even though we still, us, refugees, and many other people recognizing that that should be part of the refugee heritage uh, in, in a place like the Haitian refugee camp and Palestine. 
sometimes we sort of um, are um, more inclined to understand how the camp is working, but I'm, I'm more interested on what is it there to learn from refugee camps, right? And in that sense, I think one major thing to learn from refugee camps is adaptability, first of all, which is something that unfortunately we lack a lot. And the second is that human desire of permanency and that I have to say that both in art and architecture is super heavy in art you know the acquisition and 200 years of preserving an art piece and and you know keeping in that permanency forever and for architects you know to build a, a church or a building or a museum is a way where architects will never die right and and it's all at the at, at the at the research of permanency as a main way of understanding art and architecture, well, I think the camp humbled us to understand, you know, we are ourselves temporary in this world. I mean, none of us is permanent and nothing that we will leave is permanent. So in which way actually we can open a space in art and architecture to understand temporariness as a way of being and, and refugees are already practicing that. And I think that there is so much to learn and to understand because I feel we are stuck. We are stuck within that system of permanency. That is not the solution to rethink permanent temporariness. You know, how many of us is living in one place and thinking that maybe the day after it's better, I would not buy a sofa because the day after I'm leaving somewhere else. And we might live in that same place with that same sofa that we did not replace for 10 years. And it's still that feeling of temporariness is extremely important to embrace because it's way more real than the fake permanency that we want to convince ourselves that we have, and especially in heritage, I mean, how much we are binding to that idea of, you know, we have absolutely to sort of um, keep that heritage permanent forever. I think what we can learn from camps that, you know, that fragility of a story that you can, you know, bring from a generation to another might be way more important than to keep a material object preserved forever and not being able to adapt a story that is moving from one place to another can adapt a, a wall that, you know, in a, in a refugee camp, in order to build a wall, it's negotiated between 10 neighbors and they know how to do it. I bet you, if you are in Sweden and have to negotiate a wall with 10 neighbors, you would panic you would literally panic, right? So in, in that sense, I think that that kind of heritage, you know, after we lived this, we lived a, a, a period of a corona, we lived a period, we are living wars, we are, it's adaptability is, is an extremely important way for us to be able to survive in the world where we are in this moment. And I think the only place that I know that where I, would be eternally learning our refugee camps. So that is exactly what we are pointing at as, as history. And 
one more thing in that is the dossier you know i'm i'm speaking about and the other part is that these camps has been inspirations for the rest of the world and we are and, and looking at our young generation today how they are inspired by the resistance of these camps by the fact that you know they decided not to normalize their life to keep the right of return alive until today to keep uh, their political right and and these are you know, these camps are spaces of inspiration, political inspiration for the world. So these are the two points where we do believe that there is only in these places, it's, it's a unique to these places, and this is the heritage that we would like to see preserved. I still remember the historical moment that that, that came uh, out when Jenin refugee camp and later on Nahr al-Barid refugee camp has been destroyed. I mean, for different reasons, different uh, political conditions. But in that sense, you know, working in both situations and especially in, in Nahr al-Barid and seeing how people, the moment they, they lost the camp, they wanted that heritage back. So, I mean, while the camp was being destroyed in Nahr al-Barid in, in Lebanon, the, the community and, and with some architects and, and the community of refugees themselves immediately form a committee and they call it the Committee of the Reconstruction of Nahr al-Barid Refugee Camp. And they did not ask to return back to Haifa, even that was part of their political struggle. But the moment that the camp was lost, they, they recognized that that is really a heritage. So the question here would be, there is no way we return back to the 48, right? And we return back to how was it before we became refugees? So the question is that can we recognize 75 of refuge as history? And if that is the case, how can we recognize that? That is extremely an, an, an important question. And maybe I would like to give one more story that is extremely important while we were um, uh, filling the dossier for UNESCO. We went to uh, several houses and we decided to trace really their history from the tent to the first shelter to then uh, connecting two shelters to it becoming a house of three floors. And you know, refugees has been always a little bit negating the camp because they thought that if we will accept the camp as home, that means as if we lost our history and our village. And that is where, you know, we need to understand this as one history, as the camp and the 44 villages of origin coming together. But I still remember I was in, together with architects having, um, beginning to measure the house. And I was sitting and drinking the coffee with um, Isar's mother, with, the, with one of the participants of the university that we established in the camp at that time. And Aysar's mother was looking at me a little bit suspicious. You know, I mean, she looks at me, she says, from where are you? Says, from Beit Sahur. She realized, okay, I am a Palestinian, so there is a little bit less to maybe worry about. But she says, why are you measuring our house? What does that has anything to do with the right of return? You know, we don't want to stay in the camp. We want to return back to our villages. 
And I tried a little bit then to begin to ask her about, you know, but how about this room? And she says, ah, this room we built while Isar's father was in prison and his friends came, helped me into building one more house because the kids were growing, their father was in the prison. And she began then slowly, slowly really to speak about each and every memory of this house. And, you know, you realized how much she herself, while her husband was in prison, she really built that with love, with support, with the community help, with everyone there. And really it felt almost heartbreaking. So I looked at her and I, I say, why don't you ask for both? And she says, what do you mean? And I say, you know, the house of the village and the camp, you know how many people have two houses in the world? You deserve, it's 75 years of exile, the minimum, the minimum you should be demanding for is your place of origin and your exile. And that what will make your history one history. And, and that is really the connection. And Iser's mother look at me and says, you think I can ask for both? And I say, of course you have to ask for both, right? So also that idea that because in some way the, the world, order we are living imposed on refugees the fact that while they are refugees they have no history as if their life value less because it does not constitute history and 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 because they are only victims and victims are outside of the history written if not only as victims right so in in that sense i think the attempt was to say no these camps has history and therefore their destruction is the destruction of the history of these people. There was a moment where in, in the university, in the camp, you know, people began to talk about their life in the camp. And there are a lot of amazing things happening in the camp that, that we might dream of in a place like Stockholm. I mean, the solidarity between people, the, the, the concepts of neighboring. I mean, your neighbors are your community, your support system. Uh, you know, there is that kind of, of being together that we don't, we don't uh, recognize anymore in, in our so-called modern societies, right? But the problem is that, you know, when you begin to talk about it, people will, f will feel proud that that is what we have, hospitality, neighboring. I mean, there are so many incredible practices that, that you will encounter in refugee camps. But because they impose on themselves and, and the world order impose on them that life in camp should be absolutely only miserable, you know, you find people a little bit almost negating that they can live in a decent way. And, you know, it, there was a, a moment where one of the participants looked at us and says, but what do you want me to say, that, that life in the camp is, is good? How can I say something similar, right? And he's absolutely right. I mean, it's, but that doesn't mean that we have to recognize these contradictions, begin to process them and begin to be able to talk about that. That doesn't mean, I mean, refugee camps are crimes, crimes of humanity. They should not even exist. I mean, I'm not here to say that these camps are nice, beautiful, but the life of the people in the camps are valuable life. They have value, they have 
relations, love, emotions. I mean, there are so many things happening in the alleys of these places and that the moment that you destroy them, you destroy all that. You know, you don't only destroy a crime of humanity. How we deal with that? We need to begin to talk about it, first of all. That, that it's, it, it's not yet there. It's not a discourse that, that we hear. It's not, I mean, all what people want to hear about is victimhood. That is the only way they can process it in their mind. You know, you speak about camps as victims and people will follow you. You speak about camps as a political subjectivity, political agency, and people will look at you and say, yeah, but how can we deal with that? We need to build a vocabulary to talk about that if we need a just word. Coming to Sweden with that kind of knowledge, I mean, in Sweden, there is so, it's so hard for people to understand refugees beyond victimhood and misery, miserable. And, and, you know, in that sense, only with this idea of helping them and saving them. That is the only exact way. And then, you know, when we were in Buda and beginning to think, what does it mean to actually begin to talk, to create that vocabulary, right? I mean, to talk about refugees as active members of society. We did a project where, you know, with only one small, tiny living room at the ground floor of one of the buildings in a housing of refugees, you know, they began to come together and indeed they began to act as a community, to act with a pride, with a political subjectivity, uh, see each other each Saturday in all the north, not only in Buden, people will begin actually to know I arrive to the north, I know I can go to Buden, I meet a community, I begin to have life. In three years, actually, this project commissioned by the public art agency acquired by Moderna Mosaic was actually uh, described as one of these projects with amazing impact on the ground. So almost, you know, very ridiculous funds that needs to be uh, running it. And at a certain point, without any explanation, the migration office that are not even paying one penny for the projects would decide to close it. Why they would decide to close it? That is a lack of ability of seeing refugees beyond them being only victims. If they were able to see their political subjectivity, they would not have been disturbed of people building their own life in a place like the north of Sweden. That is where we begin to talk about it. And indeed, there was no newspaper in Sweden that would even, it's not only, you know, I mean, migration office. We are also speaking about a society that doesn't want to see them beyond their victimhood. That is a very comfortable position. No, you know, we are the saviors of the world. They need to be saved. That is a very clear, you know, they are victims. We are having good life. We help them. And that is a very, very, very clear relation. The moment you want to alterate that with words or with art projects or with anything, people are disturbed. And there is, I can tell you, I don't believe that there is a space today in Sweden to see refugees as political subjects. That is where we need to begin talking. Indeed, I mean, I still remember the first triggers of this project in uh, the north that was actually about 
them having the right to be hosts because they were kept guests forever and guests numbers forever and and i still remember that moment that these young couple syrian refugees ibrahim and yasmin and in particular ibrahim telling me you know when someone smiled to me in the street or in the supermarket the first intuition i have is to tell them why don't you come and join us in our house because it's only in our house that we believe that there is a space for us to become again humans because in the streets and in the public realm we are only numbers and we built on that saying okay if that is the case why don't we open a public living rooms where they would be act, begin to act as hosts where people begin to actually relate to them as hosts and not only guests number and guess what three years later that was not a project that that you know was was to be left because you know what does it mean to become that that would require a lot of effort from both the cultural uh, uh, sphere and and the society itself that is something that requires a lot of effort to see refugees beyond their victimhoods and beyond them being numbers is something that exists in all most, I would say, uh, uh, so-called democratic Western uh, countries, among them also Sweden. But, you know, also there is one uh, more interesting aspect that, that in some way, because, because these are real people and with political agency, it's so easy for them to come in the living room and begin to host. That is not where I feel that there was, you know, it, it's, it's, it's in the contrary. This was the most place that suits them. And they really felt that that is what they need. And, you know, it was closed for a year and a half because, because when we ask explanation by the migration office, they said that they need the space but matter of fact the space stayed em empty for for one year and a half so they left us with then what is the real reason behind that kind of asking for uh, the space and i guess that here we are speaking not about the role of refugees themselves that they are really the moment that you trigger in them their their right place they come to it very quickly very easily they are political subjects right and they act as such but i think that demanded from the other side a bit of humbleness that you are not always to save people sometimes these people can actually teach you so many things if you only let them in your life and 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 you know permits yourself to see them because, you know, they are there, they can be a richness for this country, they can add too much, we can live in a more rich place. All what is needed sometimes is to accept, actually to challenge a little bit your position, your perception of being the one that have to teach them how to live. I mean, they have so many things to teach Sweden, I mean, in terms of neighboring, in terms of hospitality, in terms of adaptability, in terms of, uh, you know, accepting the unknown as, as a situation to live with and to deal with. And I think if we only, on the other side, accept, you know, we call it empathy, but, but I would even say a little bit maybe self-challenge of you know you are not always the savior sometimes and and it's nice also to accept sometimes that you need also to be saved you know we are not all heroes and and not everybody should always play the same game 
in the in 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 the world in the theater where we are living sometimes it's extremely nice to actually put ourselves in different places it's it's a very humbling uh, condition of moving constantly between being guest and being host. Sometimes we have control of something, but sometimes we simply accept to be hosted by other people's means of being, culture, political subjectivity. And if you would let yourself doing so, your life would be a completely different one. And, and it would be at this point reciprocal. And we can speak about empathy and seeing each other beyond that kind of statistics and numbers. I think, you know, I insisted, I, and I was actually extremely um, pleased that, uh, 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 that the living room story, at least that story is preserved in Moderna Mosaic, because at least that kind of heritage is still, it's inscribed in Swedish history, right? So in, in that sense, I think what we need more and more is to see that as part of history and as part of history that is not to be included because a lot of time, you know, look at us, we include two refugees in that framework. That is not what I mean. What I mean is that, you know, to recognize this as the history that is needed by Sweden, where they are the ones that would be including Swedes that have lived luckily their life without wars, that they, but, but they will be hosting that kind of discussions because they know how to host it, they know what does that mean. And, and that humbleness to say, can we consider that history? You know, it doesn't matter if you speak Swedish, if you have a national, I, I think that is if we want to afford future wars, we need to understand our heritage as a world heritage. We cannot understand it only as national heritage. It's not, that was not what Sweden in the last three, four decades was about. It was about understanding the Swedish heritage as, as, an, as a more wide heritage, as a heritage we were, where we understand ourselves as human in that world. But what I see more and more as the only, and that is also, that is why we have to dismantle uh, structures like UNESCO that, that would say the only heritage is the national heritage. I think if we want refugees to guide us, because they are indeed the one carrying a knowledge that we will all need sooner or later, I think we have to begin to rethink what heritage means today. I mean, one lesson I learned in, in this is that even in the most extreme, extreme wars, and even if we speak about genocide today in Gaza, life remains stronger than death. And the ones that are still alive are the ones that are actually still figuring out how to move on in life, right? And, and, for the, and the problem in there is that what we are shown is only images of death and destruction. So in some way that I'm, I'm not, I do not want to undermine how, how hard it is, how, what a genocide might mean and a ceasefire is needed yesterday, not today. I mean, not to be understood wrongly, but in that sense, we have to understand that in this destruction, there are life. These are not numbers of people. These are 
stories each each number is a story of one life that that life is lost but behind that life there are 10 12 50 lives that are linked to that life and they are still alive and they are still figuring out i mean sometimes you know when i talk with my parents in in the west bank and you know me and my father sometimes feel so guilty because both of us do the same things that we call friends in gaza in order to actually receive some optimism and we think that is not okay i mean we are the ones that are living in our houses we are the ones that have food we are the ones that are able to close the house in the evening and feel safe to sleep yet that life in gaza reminded us constantly that life is way more important than than death and as paradoxically, we need to talk with them to be reminded that there is still a lot of life there. So I think, you know, I, I don't know how we can do it. And a lot of time we, I discussed that with my father. How can we still keep in mind that, you know, what is more important is life rather than death? How can you stop death? Because, you know, that death is, is, is actually is, is part of the life that would come in and, and there is where we should understand how can you know this all death we, we deal with all this death as to think repair for Gaza what, what does that mean that that would be a whole new chapter that we are working on you know we will be having 20 30 years to come to think repair in Gaza because there is still life Right? And, and that life has been damaged so much in people's feeling uh, that not only the building has been destroyed. I mean, a lot of lives that are interconnected has been destroyed, among it part of our own life too. I mean, we are not far away from what is going on in Gaza. And if we still want to... Uh, deal with with our world in terms of environmental justice in terms of we, we need we need to deal with that repair what is going on in gaza will hunt all of us for so many years to come and we will be obliged sooner or later to deal with repair if we want to still be repairing the world where we are living in let me finish with maybe also coming back to Sweden and and thinking um, again. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I see really a lot of connection with with what has happened in in Boden. And when when that living tiny living room was a little bit taken away as a space, thinking that they are taking a space, I think what they destroyed in an invisible way a lot of relations, a lot of. Uh, emotional architecture that have been built there and it felt like there was no destruction but until now I have people calling until now I'm actually processing that kind of anger of destroying such an amazing architecture that was so much much needed among refugees in the north by the act of someone and, and by it being invisible. So in some way, I think 
we really, if we think repair and reconstruction, we cannot only think material architecture. That would be a total loss. I think, you know, in, in Boden, there has been a lot that has been destroyed and, and indeed needs to be repaired if we want to give justice to that, to that project and that city. Uh, but if we think only about it as architecture, I think we will miss the whole point. You are listening to Index Foundation Podcast. Thank you.